Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella. I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Very important show today, Tyler, the continuation of our two-part series on the North Atlantic right whale population, the take reduction team efforts to protect this highly endangered whale and its impact on the Maine lobster fishery. We had on Dr. Rosaro from the take reduction team at NOAA earlier, and today we're going to talk to Patrice McCarran, the executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. That's right, Peter. This is part two, and uh, needless to say, uh, Dr. Rosaro's team and the Maine Lobstermen's Association are a bit at odds at the moment over how to respond. Not on the same page. <laughs> Not on the same page. And this is important. We are bringing uh, this discussion, this ongoing discussion as to how to manage this endangered species, the northern right whale. We are bringing the negotiation that's happening to our audience. And we think that you'll all dig it. This is relevant. For all of us, uh, even if you're not a, a fisherman or work in fisheries and the management, uh, this is important because it shows a real negotiation happening in real time between a regulatory body, in this case NOAA Fisheries, and a, a real uh, important economic engine in the state of Maine, on the coast of Maine, and frankly in the United States of America on the American shoreline, uh, the lobster fishery up there. And um, so it's very interesting. There are there are uh, ways that you can interpret this to be informative and insightful across the entire spectrum of, of coastal regulation, be it permitting and, you know, building codes, etc. So I think that you guys will really dig this interview with Patrice. But before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Well, we'd like to uh, welcome and thank the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association for becoming a partner and sponsor of Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, Shout out to the executive director of that organization, Brad Pickle, who we will be having on uh, ASPN shortly. And we would encourage everyone to take a look at the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterways 20th Anniversary Conference and attend this meeting. The, the conference is in Savannah, Georgia, from November 21st to the 22nd. You can register and learn more about the conference at AtlanticIntracoastal.org, and that's I-N-T-R-A coastal.org check it out we will be there podcasting from the conference it's going to be a great event we also want to thank our sponsor the american shore and beach preservation association and their annual national coastal conference this year in myrtle beach south carolina october 22nd through the 25th this is the premier coastal professional management conference in america and we will be there just like uh, with the Intracoastal Waterway Conference. We will be at uh, ASBPA podcasting, bringing the story to you. But don't just rely on us. Be there. Go to ASBPA.org slash conferences, get registered, and we hope to see you there. So we're really happy today, Tyler, to have a special guest on the American Shoreline podcast. This is really the second interview of a two-part series focused on the North Atlantic right whale, the efforts to 
preserve that animal and its impact on the Maine lobster fishery. Uh, earlier, we had on Dr. Michael Asaro from NOAA Fisheries talking about the federal agency perspective on the issue. And today, we are really pleased to have on and the executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association, Patrice McCarran, who knows a whole lot about this in firsthand experience up there in Maine, working with her members, the lobster fishermen of the great state of Maine. So welcome, Patrice McCarran, to the American Shoreline podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, Patrice, why don't we just open it up? Tell us a little bit about uh, your organization. Sure. Um, I'm the executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. We are a membership-based fishing industry trade association. We were founded back in 1954, if you can believe that. Um, That makes us the oldest and largest fishing industry association in the country. Um, We are governed by a board of directors. We've got 21 lobstermen who are essentially the decision makers. Um, They set all of the policy issues and the agenda for us, and I essentially work for those guys. Um, We do represent all lobstermen in the state of Maine. Um, We have about 1,200 members supporting us right now. So um, we are literally, you know, paid by lobstermen to do that work. Um, We really don't take a lot of outside grants. We don't have any of the ENGO money or conservation money. We really try to keep it pure um, so that we work for lobstermen and our agenda is strictly set by lobstermen. Now, Patrice, let's just get to know you a little bit. I mean, this is a this is an old organization, one like you said, the oldest uh, in the country. Um, how did you come to be the executive director? Uh, what's your connection with the lobster industry and lobstering, and and how did you get this job? Um, it's probably not the story that most people expect to hear. I certainly <laughs> didn't grow up in Maine. I didn't grow up on a lobster boat. Um, I actually grew up in Massachusetts. Um, so up here we actually call people like me mass holes. Um, and <laughs> I will own that for what it is. An endearing term. Uh, I had actually worked for the New England Aquarium um, back in the late 90s. And through my work there, had done some work Uh, with the Maine Lobster Fishery and specifically with the Maine Lobstermen's Association. And they ultimately invited me to come work for them. So I joined the association in 2000 and became its executive director in 2001. So it's it's been a real blessing. It's an incredible group of people to work with, um, you know, to have worked on the conservation side of issues as, you know, a person from Massachusetts, um, it's been very different to work for people who actually live conservation and depend on the resources for their livelihood. It's just a completely different perspective. Well, we're just thrilled to have you on the program today because uh, as as our audience knows, we absolutely love lobsters. We're in, we're following the story of the lobster fishery, the lobstermen that catch them, uh, we have had several shows, and this is just the most recent, but the focus of our current uh, show here is having to do with the conservation efforts surrounding the northern right whale. Uh, this is part two of our two-part show. Um, so, you know, why don't we just allow you to, to kind of frame up where the situation is in your own words with the lobstermen up in Maine and 
uh, the broad effort by NOAA and all of the states there in, in uh, you know, the Northeast United States, the coastal states, to try to conserve and, sa- and protect these whales? Sure. I think I'll start by giving you a little bit of background about the fishery itself, because it, it's almost a, a bit of an ironic situation where, you know, the Maine lobster fishery feels like we have a bullseye on our head. Um, we really are um, probably one of the most sustainable fisheries in the world. Um, we are an owner-operator fishery, which makes us very unique. Every lobsterman in Maine actually owns his own vessel, operates his own vessel, is required to pull his own traps. So there's no corporate ownership in this fishery. Every dollar earned in our fishery essentially stays local. Um, This has made the Maine lobster fishery really the lifeblood of our coastal communities. We have about 4,500 commercial harvesters in the state. Um, We're all small boats, pretty much a day trip fishery. So, you know, an average boat in Maine might be 36 feet. Um, You know, we're just not, you know, the big big business fishing that a lot of people think of. Um, A lot of our businesses are multi-generational. You know, each individual has to earn the privilege of getting his own lobster license. We don't transfer those. But it's very common that you would have a family with, you know, great-grandfather, grandfather, father, son, and grandchildren um, all carrying on the business. Um, The lobstermen in Maine, because it's been sort of a locally-based day-trip fishery, we've always had a very strong stewardship ethic because people have always felt like this fishery has provided them a great living, a way to stay in Maine, a way to raise their family. And they've really taken pride on sustaining the resource, conserving the resource, and sort of the ethic is you want to hand the resource down to the next generation in at least as good a shape as you got it in. Um, and that's that's a very, very real thing for people. People believe in that, and so they don't talk about conservation. They do, in fact, practice it. Um, the Maine lobster resource itself has really escalated in abundance. Um, Some of that has been due to environmental changes. Some of it has been due to the decline in other predator species like groundfish fisheries in the Gulf of Maine. But none of it would have happened without the strong conservation and stewardship practices of the state. And so just by way of example, when I started with the association back in 2000, the fishery landed 57 million pounds of lobster. It was valued at about $185 million. Um, For the past nine years, from 2011 to 2018, we've consistently landed more than 100 million pounds of lobster and the value has ranged between 450 to well over $500 million. So um, we are truly, truly a success story. Um, so as we fast forward into the right whale issue, it's, it's important to understand that being good stewards of the lobster resource and the ocean resource is of paramount importance to our members, and they do take that seriously. Um, so it's been frustrating to find ourselves in a situation where we feel like we are committed to conserving the right whale species, to saving the right whale, but at the same time we feel like the, the federal government is truly overreaching in what it's asking our fishermen to do, 
and ultimately our fear is, you know, if we, you know, went along with it and said, all right, you know, we got to do what we got to do. The end game is that the right whale species is not going to recover because the federal government is actually not addressing the full range of risks to the right whales. So um, it's been a very, very difficult situation for our fishery. Wow. Well, let's talk about the process that is involved here in setting up the uh, governing rules and regulations of the fishery for the protection of the North Atlantic right whale. Uh, as, I, as you know, we had an opportunity to talk to Dr. Michael Asaro at NOAA Fisheries, who uh, sort of leads the take reduction team, it's called. And I'm, what I've learned, and, I, and I'm interested in, the uh, Maine Lobster uh, Association has been a participant in the efforts by uh, the federal government and by the Northeast <clears throat> uh, states to protect this whale species for many years. Can you sort of reel back in time a little bit and tell us when the association became engaged in the issue and help our audience understand what the uh, lobstermen have done up till now to help protect these whales? Sure. Um, National Marine Fisheries Service um, first formed the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team um, I think the initial organizing meetings took place in 1995. Um, my predecessor, Pat White, um, was the representative for the Maine Lobstermen's Association um, on the TRT at its inception. I've been involved with that process um, since since I've been with the association since 2000. Um, the first right whale take reduction plan, or Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Plan, came into being in 1997. At that point in time, um, federal scientists estimated that there were less than 300 right, right whales, um, somewhere in the 290s. Um, so the species was certainly at a very critical point then. The plan has evolved over the last 20 years um, in its early phases. Um, there was a lot of effort in Massachusetts where literally half the population of right whales will congregate in Cape Cod Bay um, and feed, um, and they had some overlap with an active fishery there. So some of the more stringent measures of the early plan were really focused on that critical habitat and the interaction between that gear and whales. Um, but for the rest of us, we started modifying our gear in the 90s. Um, 1997, we added weak links um, below the buoy on the vertical line. So if a whale did encounter the line, the strain on the line would allow the buoy to pop off, and the theory is that the rope would then um, just come cleanly through the baleen, and the whale would be able to swim away um, unharmed. The other significant thing that we did then is we stopped fishing floating line up to the buoy so that at slack tide or if there were a lot of scope on the line itself, there would never be any line laying on the surface of the ocean. So if a whale came through transiting or feeding, that would be very easy rope for the whale to get tangled in. Uh, and we also um, started to minimize the the knots in splices, how we're connecting the rope itself. So, you know, rope breaks a lot. Guys need to do a lot of work on the water. So we do encourage um, rope splicing, um, gear work over the winter, rather than having large knots that could potentially get caught up in the baleen. 
in about 2000, um, we started to mark our ropes. So the Northeast region, which is all trap pot fisheries, Maine, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire together, um, we started marking our vertical lines with a red marker. Um, that evolved in the early 2000s. In about 2002, um, the federal agency implemented something called dynamic area management. And if they sighted three or more right whales in a particular area, they imposed actually a very massive dynamic closure. Um, fishermen had two weeks to remove their gear um, and get it to shore. And that program was very difficult um, for fishermen because typically they would interact with whales in the fall. Um, rough weather windows, um, like I said at the beginning, we have fairly small boats. You can't fit that many traps safely in bad weather on a boat to actually move them out. And what happened in reality was oftentimes by the time the gear was actually being physically removed from the area, the whales had, had long gone. Um, so that program was ultimately peeled away. Um, and in 2008, um, we went to fishing sinking line between our traps on bottom. So we removed the line between traps that would float in the water column. Um, that was a very difficult program for me and it actually was initiated in Massachusetts in Cape Cod Bay where the right whales had aggregated. That is a fairly shallow area, a sandy bottom, soft bottom area um, where it's not a problem to just sink your ground lines and have them sitting on the bottom. But when you come up to Maine, um, we have a very rocky, boulder-laden coast, a lot of ledge. Um, when you get to eastern Maine, bottom currents will easily rip five knots on the bottom. Um, we have, you know, ever-increasing tides as you head east, so um, fishing sinking ground lines was, was a real safety and economic challenge for our fishermen because mm. the rope just hangs down under the rocks, and it was very difficult to actually get the gear back. Um, if your gear parted off, you could no longer see a length of floating line um, on your boat computer. Um, so it's also very hard to go back and grapple that gear because the, the gear sort of lost um, on the bottom. So that was challenging. Um, but nevertheless, we implemented that and um, we removed about 27,000 miles of floating ground lines with line that sinks. So wow. we removed a significant amount of rope from the water. And then our final action was in 2014. Um, so the, the federal government essentially said, you have effectively addressed the risk of ground lines from your gear. Now we need to address the risk of vertical lines. And so Maine's plan was to require more traps on each vertical line. So we call that traps on a trawl. And essentially, the further from shore you fish, the more aggressively you needed to address that issue. So um, if you were fishing in federal waters, say 12 miles from shore, you might be required to have 15 traps on a trawl. The closer you were to shore, it might be five traps on a trawl or three traps on a trawl, depending on where you were. And we removed another 3,000 miles of uh, vertical lines through that action. And in addition to that, we expanded um, the size of the gear marking on our rope and the frequency of gear marking on our rope. So we now have a 12-inch red marker at the top of the buoy line, in the center of the buoy line, and at the bottom of the buoy line. So. Um, 
Yeah, comprehensively, that's what we've done. I think it's important to note that while this plan was coming online, um, so we had roughly 290, 295 right whales in 1997 when the plan started, um, the federal government said we had about 458 right whales um, in 2015. So the right whale population did um, slowly increase and rebound, and it's really only been in the last handful of years that there's been a very strong concern about the actual decline in right whales. But um, the population is still roughly around 400, so you know, by any standard, we have certainly remained ahead of where we started back in the 90s when the whale population was much lower than it is now. Well, that does sound like a considerable effort on the part of the Maine Lobstermen's Association and and others in the Northeast, both the the states and within this fishery and others. Uh, A lot of work, many years invested. And as you said, uh, the population at the time that this all started was around 295. It reached a peak of 458. And looking at the data that Noah provided to us. It seems that since about 2000, there's been a slow but steady decline in the population down to, as you said, about 400 over the last 15 to 20 year period here. And and how concerning is that um, to the lobstermen? Is that decline uh, uh, something that that confronts that stewardship ethic that you spoke about that I know these lobstermen have. They must be worried about this decline after all of this effort. Sure. Just to clarify, uh, the the most recent federal modeling are showing that the decline actually started in 2010, not 2000, uh, which is a big difference. Um, But yes, lobstermen are, are of course, extremely concerned about the survival of right whales. You know, these are people who literally depend on the ocean remaining healthy and robust and, you know, the ecosystems remaining intact for their livelihood. Um, They are people who are literally in awe, you know, when they have the opportunity to see these species. Right whales happen to be extremely rare in Maine. Um, There are few and far between of lobstermen who have ever actually seen a right whale. Um, And in fact, since 2010, the distribution of right whales sort of coinciding with the actual decline in the population, the distribution of the whales themselves have shifted dramatically. And something, um, you know, climactically, something in the environment, something in the Gulf of Maine has had a significant change. Um, The food source for right whales is really not present and abundant at the same time and place that it traditionally was. Um, So the most recent data has shown that whales continue to be most active in Cape Cod Bay. Um, their new northern feeding ground is now the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And based on all of the sightings and acoustic data, um, scientists have documented that the presence of right whales along the coast of Maine has actually declined significantly Hmm. since 2010. So that's part of what makes this issue so incredibly difficult for Maine lobstermen. You know, we know we fish rope. Um, We know rope is dangerous for whales. They certainly have the ability to get entangled in it. 
Um, you know, most people believe that right whales are transiting really much further offshore of the coast of Maine um, along the shelf waters and not close to the shore where the majority of our fishery is prosecuted. So, you know, we're in a situation where we have very, very few whales and an abundance of gear. Hmm. Um, and so the question is, you know, what can we effectively do that is going to help the right whales recover and sort of fundamentally um, a whale needs to be present for it to have the potential to get entangled and you know that probability is becoming less and less so we don't want to you know have closures in the fishery or remove gear in the fishery if a whale's never going to be there Um, that's an economic harm that is entirely unnecessary and is not going to help the species recover Hmm. but in the portion of our fishery where that probability is higher um, you know, we are definitely committed to taking those actions and, and hope that those measures will, in fact, help right whales. Okay. So part of the, it's part of the uh, concern, or at least a perspective from the Maine Lobster, uh, Lobstermen's Association, is that the, the, the risk to the whales of the fishery in the Gulf of Maine is simply not that great because they're not there. Um, Does the data, I mean, obviously there is a migration of the population northward. I think that is well understood. Um, It has to do with the temperatures in the Gulf of Maine and affecting the food chain. Um, About 25% of the population does uh, seem to aggregate in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, somewhere around 100 to 125 uh, animals up there. Um, But how I mean, you sound very confident when you say that they're never here. Um, do you feel, I mean, really, is the science that good? They're simply not present. Are you guys, is, is the position that we're simply not a factor because uh, th- this is not where they hang out anymore? Is that kind of the viewpoint of the association? Not at all. Not at all. Um, perhaps um, we had a misunderstanding on that. Sorry. What I said is that right whales are rare along the main coast. They are certainly here. Um, you can pop on to the Northeast Fishery Science Center website. Um, you can run um, actively a map of right whale sightings. Um, and, you know, they are certainly, you know, a whale here, a whale there. We might have two Um, or three at any given time, they tend to be sighted um, outside the 50-fathom curve off the coast of Maine. Sightings closer to shore are even more rare. And that is relative to, you know, 125 whales in the Gulf of St. Lawrence with sightings of 20 whales at a time or half of the right whale population being sighted in Cape Cod Bay. Um, with, you know, aggregations of, you know, 50 (laughs) right whales at a time. So it's not that we're saying that, you know, we don't pose a risk. We do. What we're saying is that the the measures that are put forward by the federal government should really mirror the risk of the fishery. Maine lobstermen can't solve the entanglement problem that happens in Canada we can't solve the entanglement problem that's happening now with a new right whale habitat um, off of Nantucket in Massachusetts, which doesn't have any additional measures in place. Um, so our ask is that we actually look at the number of whales present, the actual behavior of the whales. You know, 15 whales that are feeding are at greater risk of entanglement than a single whale that is simply migrating. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it, and we are fully prepared to take responsibility for the risk our fishery poses 
we believe that the federal government has overstated that risk based on the data. Patrice, I want to ask a question, and, and this is a little bit of a different kind of question, I think, but, you know, you ticked through uh, 20 years, uh, more than 20 years of uh, effort that has been made uh, collaboratively with NOAA, um, with the not not only the Maine lobstermen, but, you know, the the Department of Natural Resources in the in the northeast states uh, and, and all of the other fishermen uh, from Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And I'm just curious to know after all of that. I mean, I'm trying to ask an emotional question like. What is the emotional temperature right now within the rank and file fishery, the fishermen? Um, are they optimistic about the efforts? Are they fed up? Are they annoyed? Are they um, do they not care? Uh, is this kind of a problem for you as the association leader? And, and they're just going to conduct their business. I mean, this has been a long time. There's been a lot of effort. I'm curious to know what the what your members are feeling vis-a-vis the whale. Yeah, well, that's actually a very easy one. And the emotion that is very prevalent amongst the fishery is fear. Um, It is fear that the measures that our fishery will be asked to do are going to harm our family's ability to actually make it in this fishery. Um, there's fear amongst, you know, the grandfathers and the fathers who have already raised their family for what the future will be for their children. There's fear that, you know, given the difficulty that we may have getting through this round of rules, knowing that the federal agency hasn't addressed the full range of risk to right whales, that we're going to be right back here in three or five years because the population will be continuing to decline despite our efforts because the agency hasn't comprehensively addressed it. And what will that mean for our fishermen, for our families, for our communities? So, um, you know, you sometimes wonder, you know, what, what do people think? You know, where are people really at? And I have attended probably 15 meetings um, across the state between um, federal scoping meetings and Department of Marine Resources meetings where we've discussed the issue, we've discussed potential management approaches, and it is 100% raw fear. Um, And people really do want to help whales. I mean, that's the that's the really difficult thing. Um, But by and large, people feel that this plan is overreaching that it's going to harm the fishery and harm the fishery without helping the species recover. And and that's kind of our bottom line. You know, if we ask fishermen to take a big sacrifice, and we're certainly willing to do that, like let's roll up our sleeves, let's figure out what we need to do to take the risk from our fishery away, but how do we know that that's really going to help the whales? And the way it's been discussed so far, most fishermen feel like, wow, you know, I'm going to take a big hit. You know, I don't know how my business is going to survive. And worse than that, I think we're going to be right back here in a few years because people don't feel like what they're talking about now is going going to end the entanglement crisis because so much of it is happening outside of Maine as well. Okay. So, Patrice, I just want to follow up on that because I think that's a very interesting uh, answer. And it helps us get inside the hearts and minds of your membership who are, you know, this is their living, this is their 
this is what they do to put food on the table. And I think we got to understand that, um, you know, when you're a fisherman, there's a lot to be, uh, you know, famously f- fearful about. I think we've all, all, all of our audience around the American shoreline has seen the, basically any fishing town you go into, there's a memorial of fishermen who have perished, uh, at sea. Uh, it's a dangerous job. Uh, there's really a lot to be fearful about and to prepare for. And, you know, it's a serious, it's, this is a serious job. Um, and I'm just curious to know, like on, on the spectrum we've got right now, I know in, in your day-to-day life, the, the whale, uh, issue is, is top of mind. But uh, are there other other it's I, I'm curious to know if there are other um, stressors stressors. Yeah. In 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 the realm of the fisherman's mind that are also there. And if if maybe this is bubbling up to the surface because of, you know, it's it, the, the net sum of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, our our fishery has definitely got our fair share of issues that we're grappling with right now. I think the response to the pending whale rules is just so visceral because it could fundamentally change the fishing practices, um, the business plan for people. And as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, these are small businesses. You know, collectively, we have a very significant impact on the main economy, but individually, um, each business is vulnerable. Um, they're mom and pop operations. You know, you own your you own your own boat. You're operating your own boat, and if your fishing can't produce enough income to keep you going, like there's there's really no safety net there. Um, it's sort of sink or swim, and you know that um, has really been multiplied by some of the other things that we have been facing. And and probably the biggest crisis aside from right whales has been our bait supply. Um, in the Northeast, um, the New England Fishery Management Council and the National Marine Fisheries Service have cut our primary bait supply by almost 80% um, from 2018 into 2019, and that is Atlantic herring. Um, that's also something that seems to be the victim not of overfishing, but of this you know, climate change regime, this change in the environment in the Gulf of Maine, where they found that Atlantic herring simply haven't been reproducing at the rate that they historically had, and they're not finding the small year classes of fish, Um, and because of that, they have slashed commercial landings, and the Atlantic herring fishery is a fishery that happens um, basically at a time when lobster fishing is at its peak. So landings would typically start coming in in the summer, in July and August, and they would continue through the fall. Um, and wrap up in the winter and that fish is landed locally um, at main docks and a few docks in Massachusetts it's distributed fresh throughout the fishery Um, so it's always been a safe locally available affordable source of bait Um, the price of that bait has skyrocketed um, over the last 10 years as the herring quota has slowly come down Um, but nothing compared to you know basically an 80% reduction I think on the good news side, um, you know, the state of Maine and our businesses are, we're fighters um, and we're resilient and people in the bait market, people in the bait supply chain, you know, lobstermen, 
people have come together to really look at how we can further diversify our bait supply. Um, we're under strict standards from the state of Maine, and we're actually the only state in the Northeast lobster fishery that has these standards, but we can't just bring in any old bait. The state requires that we confirm that it is uh, disease-free, the fish itself, that it originates from a source that's disease-free. So you can't just, you know, go out to the Midwest and bring in carp or bring in, you know, tuna from the West Coast. There's a whole chain of custody that that goes with that. So I think so far, um, you know, the season has actually been off to a fairly slow start by, you know, relative standards compared to recent years we had a cold winter we had a very very cold and wet spring um and so rather than you know the lobster landings coming on you know hot and heavy right away in july it's really been kind of a slow slide into the fishery where it's just sort of week by week the catch has been building um things have been going really well now and I think that has been a good match. So as the bait supply chain has been diversifying, you know, getting the transportation, getting the trucking, you know, trying to map up with the demand of lobster, um, it's gone pretty well. So I haven't actually heard of any, um, you know, lobstermen without bait, which was a real fear going into this season. Wow, that's good news. Um, but yeah, we're still early into the fall. I mean, the, the a lot of landings will come in during September and October, and um, certainly the first part of November is also a significant month for us. So there's a lot of fishing yet to be done, a lot of demand on the bait supply yet to be answered for. But, you know, sort of the availability of bait and the price point that that bait's going to come in on can really really impact a lobsterman's ability to fish or a lobsterman's ability to fish profitably. Um, so they, they are definitely managing a lot this year. This show is also brought to you by the DHI group. DHI are the first people you should call when you have a tough challenge to solve in a water environment, be it a river, a reservoir, an ocean, a coastline, or within a city or a factory. Their knowledge of water environments is second to none. It represents 50 years of dedicated research and real-life experiences from more than 140 countries. They strive to make their knowledge globally accessible to clients and partners by channeling it through local teams and unique software. You should check them out. We've got advertisements on CoastalNewsToday.com. We've been profiling them in the Daily Blast email. But go to DHIGroup.com to learn more. Uh, Patrice, I'd like to step back just a little bit because there's some themes that you've uh, touched on uh, that seem to me to come together. And, and let me give this a try. When we talked about the landings and you had mentioned 57 million pounds uh, in the decades past worth 185 million. The fishery right now, more than 100 million pounds annually. I've seen numbers up to 130 million pounds worth a half a million dollars. Tremendous uh, productivity in this fishery and a well-managed, sustainable fishery, as you have pointed out. Um, so we're at this peak of the economic power of this fishery has never been higher. And at the same time, this sounds like existential kind of crisis feeling within the fishery that's related to maybe the herring, but certainly the right whale uh, protection measures. And 
what ties all of this together in my view is the is what's happening in the environmental transformation in this region of the american shoreline uh, you mentioned that the herring are not reproducing because conditions have changed we know the whales are going further north up into the gulf of st lawrence probably in part due to what's happening to the food chain there the copepods that they feed on um, so we're looking at, it seems to me, and this is what makes this so fascinating and relevant to all of the fisheries around the country, uh, is that we're talking about here the efforts to respond to changing environmental conditions related to, can we say it, climate change. And, and I think fisheries all around the world are actually experiencing this, and it puts tremendous pressure on the regulatory community and on the fishing community and the coastal towns whose culture, heritage, and economy depend so, so much on the success of, of your members. Um, can you talk about that broader theme? Is it something that you guys are aware of and can speak to, or is the idea of discussing climate change sort of verboten in 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 the community, um, I, I, I think you're you're spot on in terms of you know pulling the themes together. Um, I think like a lot of fisheries, you know, some lobstermen you know think climate change is real and they're fearful of it, um, regardless of whether. You say the word climate change, I think every person who fishes in the Gulf of Maine has observed that conditions have changed. Um, and when you rely on Mother Nature for your living and the past no longer informs your future strategy, you feel vulnerable. You know, you just have to make the most of what you have, you know, prosecute your business plan as best you can. And, you know, that's why when you add, you know, a very heavy, unknown set of regulations on top of that, right. you know, people don't realize, like, you know, you now have a completely different fishing strategy that you need to wrap your head around and figure out how to make work. And you have a completely different business model. I mean, not only are our members fishermen, but they're businessmen. And you have to be able to combine those two and, um, you know, like you say, things are changing. You're already flying blind. And, then, you know, yeah. sort of the entire structure that you're potentially operating in may change. And I constantly get calls. You know, Patrice, just tell me what it's going to be. You know, just tell me what it's going to be because I need to start planning. Right. You know, when's it going to come on the books? What's it going to be? And nobody, nobody can answer those questions. You know, all we can do is look at the data, try to work with our state partners, our federal partners to demand accountability for the lobstermen in terms of how these rules are going to be promulgated and that they actually set out to address the risk that they're supposed to. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of unknowns and I think that's, that's in large part what drives the fear. And yeah. I, you know, like I said previously, that the biggest fear is honestly for the generation of young lobstermen who are coming up right. and the generation of young lobstermen who hope to get into the fishery because Maine is a very rural community. Um, a lot of our communities, whether you know we're on an island or connected by land on a long peninsula, you're pretty isolated, and economic opportunities are extremely limited. Um, particularly, you know, the further you head up the coast, and 
um, it's a real crisis for our communities to contemplate, you know, what if this fishery won't sustain this generation of 20-somethings who have committed um, to being in it or the children who are hoping to come in it. You know, it's all of us, our sincere hope that we can continue to have an operating model for our fishery and a business model for our fishery that will continue to allow you know, <laughs> these children to come into it and be successful and keep our coastal communities alive. Wow. I, I, that's just so well said. And uh, it, it, it it helps me understand the verve that uh, you're bringing to the issue on the right whale, uh, because that uncertainty and anxiety uh, is so rich in its complexity when you're talking about the heritage of of these communities, we're talking about the generational uh, success that this fishery has been in existence since the beginning of the country. Uh, when people first got to Maine, I think the lobstering has been a big part of the of the state's identity. And here we are, possibly at a point where the next generation may not be able to pick up the baton. And I would imagine for all of those people who have invested their life's energy and their creative a capacity into this living. Um, it must be difficult. Um, so it does help me understand why this is so important to you guys. And, and I want to get to the, the crux of the uh, point that you have made. And that is that the problem you're having, or at least what the, the perception is, is that the federal approach that is currently being uh, put forward does not address, as you said, the real risks to the whales, that they're, even if you guys did everything you can, it, you don't feel like this is effective because there are other risks. So educate our listeners about what else is affecting these animals, the, the right whale, and and t- tell us what, what what's not being contended with in, in the approach that NOAA is taking right now. Sure. Um, What has been most troubling for us is that the federal agency is working from an assumption, um, not from fact, that because the Northeast lobster fishery is the largest fishery, it must pose the most risk to right whales. And they have based their entire strategy on that. we don't believe that that's the right way to go. We really think that you should look at the best available data, um, look at what you know and understand about the fishery and about the entanglement problem, and use that to inform your strategy looking forward. So, um, you know, one of the things that we looked at was, you know, has our whale management plan been effective? And, you know, like I said before, the whale population has pretty much been increasing steadily since we've had our measures in place. But when I look at the entanglement data from 2010 forward, so when we took our first really big step getting, you know, that 30,000 miles of floating line out of the water, what does the entanglement data tell us? And it's pretty clear. Prior to 2010, there were seven cases where there was known lobster gear removed from a right whale. Since 2010, since our plan's been on the books, there's been only one case where known lobster gear has been removed from a right whale. Um, That was gear that was confirmed to have been set in Massachusetts, and it resulted in a non-serious injury for the right whale. 
We also know that there's only one confirmed entanglement in Maine lobster gear, and that occurred in 2002. Um, and that was also um, something that resulted in a non-serious injury. The whale was entangled, it was disentangled, and in fact, the whale is still alive and, and doing well. Um, We've also looked at, you know, of the ropes that they've been removing for the whale where maybe they can't identify the fishery. Those ropes are now of a diameter that is larger than what we fish in Maine. So nearly 80% of the rope that they now take off of an entangled right whale is a half inch in diameter or larger. Um, and hmm. that's a very uncommon rope in okay. the state of Maine. What would um, that, the where Maine would... Department of Marine Resources has done a study, and um, you know, 92% of people use smaller rope than that. So, you know, all of the indicators are pointing away from that. And so, if we dig into what we do know, um, and I'm going to look just at serious injury and mortality, and not all entanglements. Um, we know that from 2010 forward that 31% of the known serious injury and mortality came from Canadian snow crab gear. We know that 13% came from gill net or netting gear. Um, 4% is from trap pot gear. Um, that's unknown. We don't know what fishery um, it was being fished in. We know that 4% were from U.S. trap pot gear, but again, we don't know what species the gear was targeting. And then the other part of that human-caused mortality is 48%, and that is accounted for by U.S. and Canadian ship strikes. So it seems nonsensical to hmm. the Maine lobster fishery that when you have zero cases in Maine lobster gear, um, you have 4% known U.S. trap pot gear, which may or may not be us, that the full burden of the U.S. entanglement reduction is being placed on the Northeast lobster fishery. Um, there is no gill nets or netting involved. There are no fisheries from the mid-Atlantic, um, no trap pot fisheries, nothing from the South Atlantic. And there are also no um, management plans in place to continue to address ship strikes. So we are very prepared to you know, find management measures. We continue to talk with our members about what those would be um, to put new management measures to protect right whales on the books in Maine. But what's the point of doing that if all of these risks that are known have no management plan moving forward to be addressed? You know, how could we possibly um, turn the species decline around because we're only a scratching the surface of known human causes of right whale serious injury and mortality with the, the approach that the federal government is currently taking. Okay, so uh, that's that's a very interesting take. Now, I've got to I've got to backtrack because I understand that there was an agreement in place that the take reduction team uh, that the take reduction team had uh, reached some sort of tentative uh, framework. framework agreement and that the uh, this was a, a, a group that included uh, representatives from you know state agencies uh, along the Northeast, including Maine, your organization, uh, as well as other organizations, ground fishing, etc. And I'm curious to know, you know, how long did this agreement last? And um, w w were your concerns about the, this data disparate, you know, the, the difference in your, your perception of the data 
were they voiced before this agreement, this framework agreement came into existence? What what happened here to uh, it seems like there was a miscommunication along the way, Patrice. I'm just curious to know uh, why we would go from an agreement to you to the to the Maine Lobstermen's Association uh, stepping away from it. Sure. And this is where it gets very, very complicated. Um, our fishery, our U.S. fisheries, um, we're managed under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, and that is the act where the take reduction team and the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Plan live. Um, we're managed under that. It addresses serious injury and mortality to right whales. However, right whales are also an endangered species. And so we are also regulated under the Endangered Species Act. So there have been two management processes underway simultaneously. Um, the Endangered Species Act is something where the federal government will conduct what's known as a Section 7 review. And they look at something that the federal government is permitting, so the Northeast Lobster Fishery, and they say, will the permitting of this fishery jeopardize the existence of right whales? Um, the federal government has told us that, you know, they feel pretty certain that they are going to come out with a jeopardy finding against our fishery. And that would do two things. Um, they would be allowed to stop permitting our fishery, <laughs> which would be crazy. Um, or they could require, you know, very stringent draconian management measures to be implemented for our fishery. In a Section 7 review, there is no public process. Um, the federal agency conducts their analysis. There's no draft of the report. It's essentially just released. So it's important to understand that that process has been hanging over our head with a loaded gun um, because nobody wants the federal government to suddenly announce, you know, your fishery jeopardizes the species and you have to do X, Y, and Z. So we've all been very, very diligently working through the take reduction team process. We've been going to meetings for a few years. Um, the last meeting was in April. Um, so a couple weeks before the take reduction team met, um, I had a board meeting and my board was asking me, you know, what's the goal? Like, what does Maine need to achieve to meet the mandate of this plan? And hopefully by doing that, we would avoid jeopardy status. And how's the federal government going to me measure that? You know, how are they going to say that Maine is doing enough? And so literally two weeks before the meeting, you know, we're going back and forth with the agency asking these questions. And they announced that, you know, the goal is going to be a 60% reduction, and they provide an explanation via email. Um, I never agreed to that 60% reduction. I didn't think that any of the data on which they based it made sense. Um, I continually questioned that in email. Um, about a week later, so less than a week before the meeting, they announced the tool by which any management approaches would be judged you know does this meet the 60 percent reduction and that is a tool that was literally continuing to be built um, they were using whale density data fishing effort data and then developing a tool to try to figure out how dangerous a particular set of fishing gear may or may not be um, so the MLA wrote a letter to National Marine Fisheries Service before the take reduction team meeting and said you know what 
you guys have dumped so much on us. We think the risk reduction goal is wrong. We, we don't agree with it. We don't agree with your explanation of it. It really doesn't make any sense to us. And we think you've made a great start at this assessment tool to figure out, you know, how do we judge, you know, how good our management um, approaches may or may not be, but it's not done. It's, it's really not ready to do the job. And we were essentially told that we either show up to the take reduction team meeting and participate or the federal government's going to go forward with the biological opinion without any of our input and and that's that and so the association you know really needs to weigh you know what's in the best interests of our members and that is to have some input to the agency on the biological opinion The data that the agency brought to the TRT meeting was basically framed around what I talked about before. The Northeast lobster fishery is the biggest fishery, so you're the biggest risk, and and that was that. There was really no talk of gillnet data. Um, So we went through that process. We went through it in good faith. Um, We tried to have a discussion about the 60% risk reduction goal at the meeting, And at that point, it went from being, you know, a goal that we would probably need to meet to something that was simply stipulated by the agency. Like, Mm -hmm. we've noted your concerns, but move on. You know, this is what we're doing. This is the standard. And so we went through that um, because the threat was if you don't participate, you literally have no voice in the process. The other big driver is that the environmental conservation community and some from the science community were pushing really hard for closures, um, time area closures, which would be devastating for our fishermen. Um, There was a huge push to remove rope from the equation and have something called ropeless fishing, which I can Mm -hmm. see no economic or operational model for our fishery. Um, It would be very devastating. And the federal government itself was saying, if you don't, if you guys don't come up with something, you know, we're just going to do trap reductions. And sort of the number that was bandied around was 400 traps. And um, we really don't have an operating model for that either. Um, so I knew those three things would be complete deal breakers for our membership. And it was important for us to go through the process and, and ensure that those would not be considered and that that input was taken. When we got back from the take reduction team meeting, um, there was a lot that didn't add up, um, and we had more than the two weeks of, you know, stuff being dumped on us to really dig back into it. Um, So as part of trying to understand the rationale for the 60% risk reduction, I took a careful walk through the entanglement database and actually identified two cases where the federal government had miscoded an entanglement um, as unknown when in fact it was either a gillnet or a netting case. Um, and those happen to fall in the five-year management window that we're working under right now, 2013 right. to 2017. So we went from having um, no known U.S. trap pot cases and you know basically no gillnet cases to having now two gillnet cases in that management window. And we now know that the only known U.S. entanglement in that five-year window um, was actually a large right whale that was entrapped in gear off of Nantucket. And so the federal agency has confirmed that that gear could not have originated from Maine. 
um, and we obtained the report from um, the folks who tried to do the necropsy. The, the carcass was ultimately lost, but saw photos of the gear that was on the whale. Um, and by every standard, every fisherman who's looked at it, it, it looks to be gillnet gear to us, but the federal agency has called that unknown gear. So just in terms of the, the five-year management window that the plan is addressing right now, there's, <laughs> there are no known cases that could have been from Maine um, and two gillnet cases. And okay. so it really begs the question, you know, why is the full weight of the U.S. management plan put on the back of the Northeast lobster fishery? We are, in right. fact, absent from that data set. It's the we didn't we aren't we didn't do it argument. Uh, we're well, innocent. You know, and in, in, in what I should say and in, in what the federal government argues and it's a very legitimate point and the reason why we're not saying you know there are no whales in maine and there's no maine lobster gear and there's no trap pot gear so we're walking away we're not doing that because many of the cases are unknown right um they so, retrieve gear okay. from a whale and they can't figure out the fishery or there's no gear present okay. and so you know we want to speak to that risk All right. but so, that risk is unknown patrice and and Look, I think the effort that the lobstermen have made and and as a critical component of the American economy and particularly the shoreline in the Northeast, you guys are a key player in this thing. And it listening to you go through the statistical breakdown, which I'm very thorough, right? It is clear to me that there is a significant difference of view as to the facts here, that we have a community inside NOAA and the take reduction team. Um, and this is Michael Asaro. I'm sure you've talked to Dr. Asaro. You know him personally and know the members of this team uh, and have worked with them for years. Uh, they're not nameless, faceless. Th- this is a community of people, a group of individuals that are federal and stakeholders and state folks that are trying to solve what is truly a real problem. I think everyone agrees to that. But the, 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 but obviously moving forward requires that the factual understanding of what's happening is needs to it would have to be a little bit closer for you all to work together. And there's got to be an explanation um, when you pointed out that, uh, for example, on the ship strikes, that 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 is a significant risk in the United States. I mean, Michael Asaro's position on that particular thing is there that has been really well managed in the U.S. Um, but what I'm getting to here is it seems to me that the clear risk uh, and the a clear source of injury and mortality to the right whales is involving what's going on in Canada. And here's my question, Patrice, why the hell doesn't the Lobstermen's Association, all of the fishery people down up in the Pacific Northwest go hand in hand with NOAA, your partners, and work together to get to Canada and bring that fishery into compliance? Because that is the stewardship ethic you believe in. It also will, if it if the if the whale numbers start to improve, there's an advantage there. In other words, I'm making an argument for working hard together to go to that. And it's, is that a possibility? Can you guys work together and get to Canada? And, and it does seem that there are some legal levers available to the agency uh, that would kick in in 2022. But tell us about why can't you go hand in hand and let's 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 do the right thing for this animal. 
Yeah, I mean, that's been a tremendous frustration for the Maine Lobstermen's Association, for our members. Um, you know, this is one of those issues where I feel like when I bring up Canada, people just start snickering at me because I'm, I'm beating a dead horse. Um, we are consistently told by the agency that high-level talks are underway. Um, I have um, requested to attend those meetings. Um, I've been told that they are closed meetings. Um, as it turns out, even the commissioner of the main department of marine resources, you know, the state that is actually adjacent to Canada, um, they are not allowed to participate in those meetings. So, you know, this is again one of those things like the biological opinion where the federal agency is just you know, has some sort of like tight grasp on the process. Um, you know, we get dribs and drabs of, you know, oh, we're meeting with them. Oh, it's going well. Um, but there's really not been that accountability. And it's been ironic okay. to me that over and over I continue to read in the media um, the tremendous job that Canada has done responding to the right whale crisis by putting measures in place. And you know, there is some truth to that. Um, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans did act swiftly in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Um, they did implement some static closures. They did implement some, um, you know, shipping lane slowdowns. Um, but they relaxed those measures in 2019. Yeah. And with devastating results, we've lost eight whales up there this year. Yeah. But nobody has addressed the fact that the United States already has in place comprehensive whale protection measures from Maine to Florida throughout the range of the species that you know we interact with the whales and Canada has zero measures in place for any fisheries outside of the Gulf of St. Wow. Lawrence um, so none of the lobster fisheries that operate in the Bay of Fundy or right. along Nova Scotia Newfoundland only the snow crab fishery in the Gulf of St. Lawrence is subject to regulation you know, we have three quarters of the gear removed from right whales from unknown. Um, only the Canadian snow crab fishery in the Gulf of St. Lawrence is undertaking any sort of gear marking. So, you know, you have fisheries um, in Canada the size of the Northeast lobster fishery in the U.S. with, you know, floating line at the surface of the water, with floating line between traps, with no weak links, with no gear marking. Right. And we don't want to tell Canada how to manage their fisheries. We want to have that government work to find something that's going to work for those fishermen. But it's extraordinarily frustrating yeah. to have, you know, the <laughs> things dialed up and more pressure fall upon the main lobster fishery right. when, you know, we know that a lot of these serious injuries and deaths are occurring across the border. Yeah, that's a legitimate concern, I think. And uh, it, it seems to me that NIMFs and, and the NOAA Take Reduction Team folks have got to get a handle on Canada or they can't really expect, you know, it, it's hard to get the support of you and your members if that risk, and as you say, eight uh, this year killed dead whales in Canada, and I believe it was 12 uh, in a previous year. So since 2017, I believe January 2017, there's been 28 confirmed uh, losses of these whales. 20 of them are in Canada. So uh, it just seems that, it, that that nut has got to be cracked if this is going to, to go forward. Um, I want to ask one thing. It, you've 
indicated that there just isn't any real significant evidence here that the main lobster lines are contributing to injury and mortality. It seems minimal. And the way to prove that would be to have absolutely certain gear markings. If I were the head of the Maine Lobsters Association, I'd say, guys, we are going to buy, uh, you know, heavy duty uh, plastic tags when a zip line every line that's going to have a qr code on it that's going to tell when you know exactly what boat it came off of because we are going to prove definitively that these lines are not our lines would the Maine lobster association support aggressive absolutely certain 100 percent gear marking to make your case yeah, I mean, that's actually something that um, we've been working closely with the Department of Marine Resources. We are moving forward as a state uh, implementation ahead of all the federal whale rules. So for the 2020 fishing season, uh, unique gear marking for Maine. So right now we share the same color as New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Um, and we're going to mark all of our gear. There's a portion of Maine waters that are exempt from the federal whale plan because there are so few sightings in those waters. Um, we're going to mark the gear in that area. Um, we're going to add more marks to the line. Um, and then in the meantime, um, we need to work on some of these technological solutions so that we can have something kind of off the shelf. But that's something that we would phase into over time. Um, but yeah, we're 100% committed to getting this done as soon as possible. I mean, it just seems simple. I, I mean, I'm not a fisherman, so I don't know Patrice, and this is always dangerous, but, you know, putting zip ties in a particular configuration on a line doesn't cost anything. It doesn't take any time. I mean, there's got to be a way to, to make the case that you believe is true, which is it ain't us. It's really just not coming from here. And it would direct the regulatory pressure to the right place. I would, without regard to who's regulating it, the fishermen could simply decide to mark the hell out of their gear tomorrow and and go into those meetings saying, listen, here's the truth based on this aggressive identification of contribution. I mean, I, I just think, but um, I, I, I think is... It's such a tough problem, Patrice, and I think your organization has worked very, very hard, obviously, for decades now with the your federal partners and the folks at NOAA. And uh, it's so important to the to everybody. And I would say everybody around the world who's semi aware of this kind of issue that you guys are successful in working this through with all of the stakeholders. And I, I continue to hope for uh, you know good faith efforts on the part of all of the players including you guys and wish you well in the process of sorting this very difficult issue out yeah we definitely have a heavy lift ahead of us um, but I can assure you that the Maine Lobstermen's Association and our members are committing to take responsibility for the risk our fishery poses um, as frustrating as it's been <laughs> um, you know we will continue to work with our federal partners um, really the only thing that we're asking right now is that the federal agency use the best available data and address all of the known human cause um, causes of right whale serious injury and mortality and not solely target our fishery because you're not going to solve the problem with that approach 
Ladies and gentlemen, Patrice McCarran, Executive Director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. Uh, Patrice, thank you very much for educating our listeners about the complexity of this issue and the perspective that your uh, members bring to it. Uh, as Michael Asaro said in his interview, there isn't anybody who knows more about how to protect the whales than the lobstermen because they're out there. And I think that's a great starting point. You guys have a lot to offer, and uh, we hope you'll, uh, we wish you all the success in the world and in your efforts. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to, to share our perspective on this. Thank you. Sun.